my uncle and aunt had the farm, and so when they passed on, it was in debt. So I ended up taking up the uh, loan, and that's pretty much how I began to understand all of the injustices and racism that was going on with blacks owning land in this country. This is Eddie Slaughter, a black farmer based in Buena Vista, Georgia. Today, we'll hear about the discrimination that almost cost him his family's land. And later, I'll speak to McKenzie partner Shelley Stewart III about his work on black economic mobility in America. I actually think that a lot of folks intuitively understood that there was a racial wealth gap and that there's income disparity. But I was I was actually surprised that even folks who study it, even folks who spend time thinking about it, didn't realize the magnitude of the gap. Welcome to Access and Opportunity. I'm your host, Carla Harris. We're telling the stories of individuals driving change to address racial inequities and sharing tangible examples of how ideas around access and opportunity are being made real every day. On today's episode of Access and Opportunity, we continue the conversation about the racial wealth gap. We'll focus on some of the barriers that Black Americans face when it comes to financial inclusion and owning assets, especially property and home ownership, which are both fundamental in creating wealth. Shelley Stewart III, who leads McKinsey's research on Black economic mobility in the United States, has published numerous articles on racial inequity. He'll speak with me about the roots of the pervasive inequities that have shaped the Black financial experience. But first... We'll hear from Eddie Slaughter about his fight to keep property that had been in his family for generations. Eddie Slaughter, now 70 years old, was born in Georgia but grew up in Miami, Florida. From an early age, he knew that city life was not for him. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> I'm so country that if you go out there and stir that earth up, it's just something about the smell of the, oh, my God, it's country. I don't think I can tell you it's just country. Because I was such a country boy every year when summer came out, I would spend those two and a half, three months back here in Georgia because I always knew I was coming back to the land and back to the farm. True to his word, Eddie eventually moved back to Buena Vista and inherited the family's farm. I like being out here. I like flying. I like putting the crop in. I like harvesting the crop. It's just a better quality of life all the way around. Today, black farmers like Eddie make up less than 2% of the farming population in the United States. But there's a proud history of black farm ownership beginning in the Reconstruction era. Well, you have to go back into the ending of the Civil War. It was three great things that had happened to the South. First of all, the Confederate money was no good. They no longer had free labor, and they had all this vast land and didn't know how to till the soil. So that gave opportunity to those large black families because now not only were they able to farm that kind of land, but able to get paid for their wealth. So they was able to buy it back. And so 45 years out of slavery, that was in 1910, we had amassed 16 million acres of land in, in America, mostly the historical South. Eddie is the latest in a long line of slaughter family farmers. 
They bought their plot in Georgia about 100 years ago and have been passing it down for generations. My granddaddy Tim Slaughter owned it, and then it was passed down. Then my uncle and my dad owned it. Now I am owning it, and hopefully that Lord's will, we'll be able to pass it down to my sons and grandsons, so that'll be four and five generations, respectively. When Eddie's aunt and uncle passed away, Eddie inherited the second farm that he loved as a kid. There was just one snag. The farm was in debt. So I ended up taking up the uh, loan, and that's pretty much how I began to understand all of the injustices and racism that was going on with blacks owning land in this country. The trouble Eddie ran into as a black farmer wasn't unique to him. He faced discriminatory systems that have been in place for decades within the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA. Well, they say that it's supposed to be the People's Department in government, but we found out it to be the last plantation because some of the same problems you had in sharecropping and all the Jim Crow's laws that you deal with is innately put into USDA. The USDA gives loans to farmers to help cover normal operating expenses. But the department often treated black farmers differently from white ones. And generations since his family began farming, Eddie was still experiencing the same discriminatory practices. Most of the time, if you put in an application for a loan, two things always, always happen. You never got it on time and you never got the money you requested. That's why... There are so many of them out there that tried to get away from USDA because of discriminatory practices, but all of, most of them couldn't. You, you have to sell off like 1,800 acres of land so that you can get off and under USDA. Even when Eddie was able to get loans, he found they had strings attached, like how his loans were issued in what's called a supervised account, meaning he had to ask for permission each time he wanted to use the money that was loaned to him. If I got to pay this money back, why every time that I get ready to write a check, I got to come to your office for you to sign for it. I say, I come here sometime, you ain't here. Then if you're on vacation, it takes some time a week or longer for me to, you know, get this here. And I was wondering, why do I have to have a supervised account if I'm accountable for paying this money back? Understand that 99% of all blacks, their accounts were supervised, but that wasn't the case with whites. So, you know, those kind of things was like, why do this have to be? And uh, most of that is to make sure that you are not as profitable as you should be on your farm. The widespread mistreatment was often carried out by the USDA's local branches, which were largely run by all-white county committees. They have all of these millions of dollars flowing into the county committee, and these people here will decide whether or not you're going to get the loan. It is nothing more than a tool to decide who can and who can't own land, who can and who can't farm. Eddie also found that the USDA would even use loans as leverage to control what black farmers could and could not do with their land. Here is Eddie during a 1997 congressional hearing on discrimination in the USDA's loan processing. If you can lend me from $50,000 to $200,000 to plant softwood timber and can't lend me $14,000 to operate my farm, that is a shock to the American sense of fairness. It is wrong. It is wrong. 
A report released by the USDA in 1998 finally admitted that there was systemic discrimination in the department, resulting in black farmers losing more than 90% of their land over the last century. In the late 90s, thousands of black farmers collectively took action against the USDA in a landmark class action lawsuit, and they won. The U.S. government gave $2 billion to black farmers, but the damage had already been done. You can't find me one black farmer in the continental United States that received justice out of the lawsuit. They, they paid out over 2 or $3 million, a billion dollars to lawyers, but the black farmers, most of them, by the most part, are worse off now than they was before the lawsuit. So that's just a harsh reality that we have to live with every day. There are more attempts to right the mistreatment of black farmers. The American Rescue Plan, passed into law in 2021, includes $5 billion of relief for farmers of color. But it's unlikely any bill can reverse the effects of more than a century of the USDA's discriminatory practices. After years of fighting the USDA over loans, Eddie is out of debt and he is ready to move on. Uh, the Bible says that a good man will leave an inheritance for his children's children's children. So I'm hoping that I can leave an inheritance that, you know, they won't be saddled with the debt that I had to fight with. But uh, this place going to come alive again like I had it before. So uh, it's what it said, a dream deferred. Yeah. Well, mine has been deferred, but hey, I'm right back on schedule. Eddie's experience with the USDA is just one of countless examples of how systemic forces have limited Black access to ownership, be that land or a home, and contributed to the racial wealth gap that exists today. It's people like my next guest, Shelley Stewart III, who research and analyze these forces in order to help provide some solutions for populations historically excluded from traditional avenues of building and passing down generational wealth. I sat down with Shelley to talk about his work on Black economic mobility in America, systemic policies and practices that exacerbate racial inequities, and how those affected can prosper in spite of it. Shelley, thank you so much for being here with me today, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Carla, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So let's start with you telling us about your work at McKinsey, where you lead the new McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility. Give us a little background on that. How did that come to be? Why were you uniquely qualified to take on this challenge? And just tell us a little more about it. To be honest, Carla, it started very much as a passion project for myself and some colleagues. So we had been discussing issues as part of our McKinsey Black Network, and we said, let's get some executives together and let's use the network and power of McKinsey to just facilitate a dialogue. We published this piece, The Impact of the Racial Wealth Gap, and that was really kind of the first thing that set us up to really scale. If you fast forward to the summer, early summer of last year, with what happened with the murder of George Floyd... As we reflected as a firm and a group of Black colleagues and partners on what we would want to commit to, which ultimately became McKinsey's 10 actions for racial justice, we thought it was a great time to institutionalize the research we've been doing. And so that's how we got to, to where we are. We announced that in June of 2020, 
and we formally launched the Institute in December of last year. Well, first of all, let me applaud you all on having the passion and bringing it forward with the commercial angle, because as I like to say, you and I may not agree on the nice thing to do, but as business animals, we will agree on the commercial thing to do. What in specific were the things that you think were the ahas in those first couple of pieces that really captured everybody's attention? And what were the things that you think that the Institute found or that you found in those earlier days that were previously overlooked and underfunded? I think the core idea for founding the Institute is to move the discussion about racial equity beyond the four walls of a company, beyond DE&I initiatives. In terms of the, the early days and the findings, I actually think that a lot of folks intuitively understood that there was a racial wealth gap and that there's income disparity. But I was actually surprised that even folks who study it, even folks who spend time thinking about it, didn't realize the magnitude of the gap, right? Anywhere from eight to 10x, if you think about median white family wealth versus median black family wealth. And that stayed remarkably consistent over time, which is the troubling fact. And when we go through things like COVID 19 or the Great Recession or other you know, exogenous events, we tend to see that gap widen temporarily and then normalize back out during the recovery. So I think the magnitude of the gap and how consistent it's been over time into economic cycles is one of the most eye-opening things for, for many folks. Yeah. So let's go there. Let's talk a little bit about this gap. You just alluded to the fact that the gap between, you know, median black families and white families could be eight to 10 times. You know, let's talk about some of the historical policies and practices that created that and ex has exacerbated that and actually caused those things to widen, as you say, when we get in crises, whether it's COVID-19 or an economic crisis. Yeah, there's no question that there are lots of historical policies that have contributed to where we are today. One that's been widely discussed and one that I think, frankly, anchors the broader discussion is redlining and restrictive covenants with respect to where Black Americans could live at the time that that was put into place. And the downstream implications of that are manyfold, right? These are the communities that have suffered continuously from underinvestment. And it's not just public sector investment. But if you actually look at what I'll call deserts, so consumer deserts, whether it be healthcare, banking, whether it be even broadband access today, it's remarkable how closely those deserts map to redlining that was done decades ago. Yeah. And I'm not going to assume that our audience understands what redlining is all about because you don't hear those words as much as you heard them to three decades ago. So can you just define what redlining was, make it real and make it plain for them? Yeah, absolutely. In simple terms, this was all about driving a certain families, in this case, Black families, into certain neighborhoods and separating them out from white families. And this was done in a variety of different ways with respect to how mortgages and lending occurred and who could get loans in certain areas. And then even explicit restrictive covenants in terms of who could move to certain places and communities. And so it really was about residential segregation and actual policies that supported and accelerated this segregation further. And we're still grappling with that today. 
Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll take it one step further. There was literally a red line drawn on a map around certain neighborhoods and in certain areas that those who were doing city planning, those who were allocating resources to certain places in the city or the town, those who were looking at political processes. So it was just that literal, which is why people call it redlining. But it had, as Shelley has said, significant implications to resources and opportunities to those neighborhoods, which ultimately impacted one's ability to build wealth or to have a house. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, being able to have your own home, your own real estate is sort of the foundation of starting to to build wealth, which is why he said, significant implications from there. Now, Shelley, you said in one of your reports that I think it was your 2019 report that the racial wealth gap then could easily drive $1.5 trillion of costs for the U.S. economy from 2019 to 2028. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got to that number and what that, again, what that looks like? We did some econometric modeling, which I'll spare the intricate details of, but we essentially forecasted the multiplicative effect of one additional dollar of wealth on the economy and what that would actually do. And so to increase capital investment in both businesses and consumers, and we said, what would that actually mean for GDP and for output? And what we found in kind of shocking this model and bringing Black American wealth up to parity with white Americans, we found that if you could close this gap gradually over the next 10 years, by year 10, you would be adding $1.5 trillion of incremental economic output every year. And that's not just money flowing to Black Americans, as I often explain. That's incremental dollars in the pockets of everyone. And what do you think of the role of entrepreneurs and institutional investors and even VC in combating the wealth gap? The institutional investors in VC, I'll take them first and then we'll talk about entrepreneurs. As allocators of capital, you play a tremendous role in combating the racial wealth gap in a number of different ways. There's, there's the obvious one, which is hire folks, create jobs, income, wages. This is how you build wealth, right? You earn money. That translates into wealth over time. The other way is through your investment decisions and dollars. Investing in businesses owned by people of color generates wealth to the owners. And we also know empirically that it generates jobs in these communities because these owners of color tend to also hire and employ people of color. So there's just a huge opportunity to spend more time there. In terms of entrepreneurs, we need more entrepreneurs in the Black community. And we need to make sure we fund those entrepreneurs because they also, as I said, create jobs. The economic engine of the U.S. is our small and medium business community. Yeah, there's an overwhelming amount of data that talks about the fact that small businesses are the primary generator of jobs in this country. And being able to have access to capital to create the business and more importantly, to scale it can have a powerful multiplier effect with respect to closing the wealth gap. What do you think policymakers can do? Because that's something we have been pretty articulate about. And I'd love to hear your perspective. The government at all levels plays a big role in driving equitable outcomes, state and local, as well as as federal. The government is sometimes a funder and investor. So just direct dollars, whether it be through SBA loan programs or other 
direct injections of capital to individuals or businesses. Government also plays a huge role in what the private sector does. Indirectly or directly, government helps to guide and steer where the private sector makes investments. The government influences this through their regulatory authority and through things like tax incentives. And the third one I'll highlight is their role as watchdog and enforcer. Even if you have good policies in place and you have good intent, broadly speaking, in the private sector, whether it's something like mortgage lending, or we've seen some of this bias in in the real estate market recently where certain brokers won't show certain houses to certain families, the government has a role to play as the watchdog and enforcer to ensure that where bad behavior is occurring, it's called out and addressed as quickly as possible. Very well said. And let's take it right down to the personal for our listeners. What are some of the biggest barriers to entry in this financial system to financial inclusion for young people? I think particularly for young people of color, it's all the stuff that we talk about in the context of the wealth and income gap. There's a lower starting endowment, right? You're less likely to have inheritance. And if you have it, it's much smaller. Over time, incomes tend to be lower, which is something we have to address. 70 to 80% when compared to you know, white Americans, depending on whether you're male or female. To the extent you've gone to college, higher student loan debt on average, right? Which means you have to service that debt and pay it down over time, which reduces your ability to invest. And in some instances, you just have less exposure to investing whether it be because your family didn't invest or your people in your circle don't invest. I could not agree more. That exposure issue is a big deal. You know, if I had had this information when I was 19 and 20, I would have thought differently about how to use that money, how to engage it. But you've said that financial literacy is not the silver bullet. But how can we talk to this audience about finding out about the information networking with the people that are in your lives, whether it's people who are on this podcast, but finding out and arming yourself. What else can they do, Shelley? Absolutely. I think there's a couple of things that financial institutions can do. And then I think there's an individual side of it. So first, we have to continue to create more accessible pathways to start investing and saving with lower levels of starting capital. That is just incumbent upon the folks who have these products and resources. The second thing as employers in general is providing education at the key inflection point in a person's income and wealth trajectory. So early days of college would be one example, or another one might be at the end of college or when you start your first job. In terms of individuals, I think there's some tactical things. One, make savings a practice. Even if it's small and incremental, just start. Building wealth is a lifelong process and needs to be just be a core activity to what we do. So forget the money, right? Just invest it, save it, forget it. Whatever level it is, even if it's only 1% of your income or even less, put it somewhere, pretend it doesn't exist, go back and watch it grow over time, and that will help to create a nest egg. And don't worry if it's only a small amount, just start. And Shelly, what about people who feel a little bit discouraged because they believe that you need $2,500 to open a mutual fund or you need $500 in order to get a good savings account. Can you just blow that myth out of the water that today is different? Today is absolutely different. There are many innovative financial services companies that are offering the ability to go small, to just get a start. And they're able to do that because their cost structures are just dramatically different than it was for institutions 10, 15, 20 years ago. So 
you should not be worried about needing to go big. If you can't go big, put something in the account, buy one share of a stock and just get started. Absolutely. Or a fractional share. Get a fractional share, but get it rolling. All right. Before we get out of here, though, what's next for the Institute for Black Economic Mobility? We're early. Right? We are still crafting our more comprehensive research agenda. We want to be more than just a research body. We want to enable our colleagues, our clients, folks that are in the broader ecosystem to understand how to embed racial equity in everything that they do. If you're a private company, that means embedding it in your operations embedding it in your business strategy, embedding it in your corporate social responsibility strategy as well. And so that's our goal. And we hope to continue to accelerate and be having more discussions like this. Well, Shelly Stewart III, I will be watching and applauding, honey. Make no mistake. Well, we have a tradition on access and opportunity called the lightning round. And that's where I ask you a series of rapid fire questions and you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. And it's an opportunity for our listeners to get to know the man a little bit more than the conversation that we've had. So are you ready, Shelly? I'm ready. Here we go. City or countryside? City. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Black. I hear that. Book or TV? TV. Personal mantra? Find inspiration in everything. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? You. Ah, thank you. I will take that all day long. And one word to describe your legacy? Empathy. Well, Shelley Stewart III, thank you very much for the privilege and the honor of having this conversation with you. The privilege and honor was all mine. Thank you so much, Carla. It was truly an honor to hear from these two gentlemen today. You know, in hearing Eddie's story, I couldn't help but feel inspired by his tenacity. 30 plus years into his fight, and he's still just as fired up as ever. But his story is also a sobering reminder that Black Americans who aspire to own tangible assets like land or a home are up against decades of systemic discrimination such as redlining policies. And we still see its effect to this day with a nearly 30 percentage point gap between white and Black home ownership. By being denied the opportunity to acquire wealth, we've been left with very little to pass down to our sons and daughters. So they're already behind from the start. And that is why the cycle continues. Inequity is woven into the very fabric of our American institutions. So to see real lasting change, the whole system needs to shift. That's why I was so glad I had the opportunity to speak with Shelley more broadly about not only these various mechanisms that ultimately impact one's ability to build wealth, but also the potential solutions to combat them. I applaud the work that the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility is doing to educate folks and ensure that racial equity is at the root of everything. I want to thank Eddie Slaughter and Shelley Stewart III for sharing their experiences and insights with us today. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of Access and Opportunity, highlighting the racial wealth gap and examining how policies of the past will still affect the people of today. What did you learn today from Eddie and Shelley? Send us your thoughts at carlapod at morganstanley.com. We would love to hear from you. Subscribe to Access and Opportunity on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for coming along. <laughs>